0: Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers,
1: and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! In this episode, Evan Stewart interviews Wellesley College professor Ari Hahn. Dr. Hahn's research examines the many ways that activist organizations work to inspire both political action and political enthusiasm. In a recent book, How Organizations Inspire Activists, Civic Associations and Leadership in the 21st Century, Dr. Hahn finds that the advent of online-based petitioning and letter-writing means that these two goals are not always met through the same tactics. She explains why, and suggests how modern organizations might influence political transformation in new and powerful ways. So Hari, welcome to Office Hours, thanks for talking with us today.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you.
1: You've done a lot of research with political activist organizations, both here in the United States and um, internationally. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the groups you've worked with and particularly how you choose which groups to study?
0: Sure. Um, Well, it's interesting because I've done work with a bunch of groups in two different capacities. So on the one hand, I've done a lot of research with different organizations trying to understand how the organizations work. But then I've also done... A lot of uh, other work with organizations trying to take the findings from my research and other people's research and and working with them to figure out how they can apply it to their own work and so the criteria that I use to think about how to choose which groups to work with varies based on whether I'm approaching it from a pure research standpoint or um, more from the standpoint of practical politics and so for example in the book um, How Organizations Develop Activists there I wanted to understand um, you know, what I really want to do is, is I try to isolate the organizational factors to understand the extent to which what organizations do influences the levels of activism that they're able to inspire. And so there I was really looking for organizations that had characteristics that were really common across a wide range of different kinds of civic associations in the United States. So for example, I wanted you know organizations that were federated because so much, so many of the organizations that we've had in the U.S., have been federated organizations, meaning that they have national, state, and local chapters. Um, I wanted organizations that relied on, you know, volunteer members and elected leadership, because you know, again, having that elected leadership is sort of a key characteristic that differentiates civic associations from other kinds of associations. And so, really, what I was looking for is organizations that um, had traits that were emblematic of other kinds of civic associations, so that I could have more confidence that the findings that I found. Were generalizable to other kinds of organizations, but on the other hand, sometimes when I'm doing working with groups that are interested more in trying to take the findings that we have um, from, or, you know, sociology, political science, organization studies, and think about how to apply them in their own work, what I look for most are organizations that are really learning organizations, like organizations that are um, interested in doing their work in such a way that they can always learn from it, and. I found that those kinds of organizations are the ones that seem to, um, you know, gain the most from the kind of partnerships that we can create.
1: On that sort of note, um, what sort of findings do you pull out of this? What makes people political? What do these organizations provide which gets people involved and keeps them involved?
0: So I guess the first point to make is that this idea of what makes people, the question about what makes people political, um, you know, the first thing I would say is that political people are not born, but they're made, you know, so I think that there's kind of this sense sometimes, you know, both in academic research and in popular culture out there that some people are just more political than others, right? Some people just are born with this love of politics, and other people are not, and that's what differentiates them. And I think that a lot of what my research shows is that um, organizations really matter, um, and the extent to which people develop the... Motivations and the skills and the capacities that they need to exercise their citizenship and to be active citizens um, is really a social process, and that organizations play a particular role in shaping the kinds of experiences that politicize people. So, you know, my work and the work of a lot of other people have shown that, you know, people might get involved for a wide range of, first get involved with organizations for a wide range of different reasons, and some of them are very idiosyncratic and biographical, but that they stay involved um, when the organizations are able to structure experiences that help them develop their own agency and um, you know, and, and and connect their personal concerns to political ones essentially.
1: So, do you have any particular examples or stories that stand out of organizations that did this particularly well um, that you saw in your work?
0: Sure. So, in, um, so I was looking at two different organizations, one that was trying to get uh, ordinary people involved in our environmental politics, and then another that was trying to get doctors involved around health politics. And one of the things I was struck by, first of all, I should say, is that is how similar the findings were across these organizations, right? So these they were working with different kinds of people on different issues, um, yet the kinds of things they did that were able to get people involved were very similar. And so, for example, you know, some some of the most uh, like successful organizations at getting people involved, one of the things that they did really well was they created this whole social context around um, activism and participation that helped sustain people's involvement over time. So what ended up happening was that instead of staying committed only because they were committed to an issue, people stayed involved because they became committed to the people around them. So one example is that I was observing two different organizations that were trying to generate a letter writing campaign where people would write letters to the editor, essentially. And in one of them, they thought, okay, well, what we want to do is we want to make letter writing as easy as possible. So we're going to create a whole template, and all people have to do is sign in online and click a few buttons and enter their address, and this letter to the editor will basically be created out of the template, and then they can send it off to their local paper. This other organization thought, well, we want to generate letters to the editor. We also want to do it in a way that's going to cultivate people's enthusiasm for doing more activism even beyond this campaign. And so what they ended up doing was they ended up um, recruiting people who were interested in writing a letter and then they paired them with another person that, and the two people could work together online to craft a letter that they would then send off together to, let, to the editor. And so that's just an example of how you know one of these organizations is really conscious about always trying to create these social relationships in a way that one of the other other organizations
1: not. Yeah, and this is a really interesting point because when we talk about political movements we often use um, words like mobilizing and organizing interchangeably, but when you talk about this distinction between creating an experience and um, just getting people active on an issue, um, your book is very careful to separate uh, mobilizing from organizing. So, could you talk a little bit about why you did this, and what organizers can really learn from that distinction between these terms?
0: Yeah, Um, you know, so when I first started working on this project, um, one of the things that really motivated me to get involved was, was looking around and realizing that there's so many organizations out there that are trying to get people involved in different ways. You know, whether it's political campaigns or civic associations like the ones that I study, or or movements, you know, all over the world. And they're using this wide range of different strategies, and the strategies seem to be changing constantly because of new technologies and um, new ways of getting people involved in the 21st century. And in talking to a lot of these organizations, what I found was that in some ways people felt like it's easier than ever to get people involved now, right? It used to take you know, weeks and weeks of pounding the pavement to get 100,000 know, 100, signatures on a petition. But now, in a matter of hours, if you write the right petition and send it through the right social networks, you can get 100000 signatures in just a matter of hours. And so on the one hand, it seemed like people, it was easier than ever to get people involved. But then on the other hand, um, exactly what was resulting from those mass instances of collective action was a little bit unclear. So even if we look at, like, the Arab Spring or Occupy Wall Street or some of the big movements that have happened in the past few years, they may have won some initial gains, but they haven't necessarily been able to sh- to protect those gains over time. So, you know, in Tahrir Square, they were able to bring down Mubarak, but then the military government is now back in power, right? And with Occupy Wall Street, they were able to occupy Zuccotti Park and other public spaces across the country, but they haven't really won a lot of um, policy changes when it comes to questions of economic inequality. And so. As I began to do this research, I sort of had that in the back of my head, and what I began to see was that, you know, there aren't people talk about getting people involved as if it's all just one kind of thing, but in fact, there are lots of different ways of getting people involved, and those differences I think begin to speak to some of the questions of power that we're talking about. And so, in my book, I make a distinction between what I call transactional mobilizing and transformational organizing. And so the idea behind transactional mobilizing is that there's some organizations that are just focused on getting as many people as possible to take action right and so they do things like I was describing before to create opportunities that are as easy as possible for people to get involved so all they have to do is click, click a button and then send the letter to the editor off they don't have to coordinate with other people and they don't have to leave the comfort of their own computer and so what ends up happening is that they're able to generate really high numbers simply because They're able to sort of draw on bigger and bigger prospect pools using the technologies that we have today. Um, And the the opposite of that were organizations that were really focused on transformational organizing, or what I call transformational organizing. So what they're trying to do is not only just try to get as many people involved as possible, but to do it in a way that transforms people's capacities for further activism. And so they cultivate their emotional capacities, their motivations, they cultivate their skills, the hands-on and practical capacities that they need, and their strategic capacity, their ability to sort of develop strategy to think about how they can sort of exercise voice in our political system. And it was the organizations that really combined the transformational organizing work with the transactional mobilizing work that were the most successful in sustaining high levels of activism over time, because basically, the transformational organizing gives them the depth that they need, and the transactional mobilizing gives them the breadth that they need. So They were able to both do deep work, but do it at scale by combining those two strategies.
1: What do you think sociology contributes to our understanding of the political world?
0: Um, it's an interesting question because... So I... Um, I mean, the easiest way for me to answer that, I think, is by, by talking about how I got into this work myself. Mm-hmm. And so I... Um, you know, I originally... I, was a da- I grew up as a daughter of Korean-American immigrants in Texas, and I grew up in a very apolitical family. My, my parents, you know, weren't citizens, and they weren't able to vote, and it was much more about them just trying to make it in this country. And so I really had no sense of politics and certainly no understanding of sociology as I was growing up. And I went to grad school, I mean, sorry, I went to college, and I majored in history and literature because I just wanted to read lots of books. You know, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but ended up getting a job in politics. Um, after college. And it was really that experience of working in politics that got me interested in the academic study of it. And so what I found was that by, um, by working in politics I was able to sort of um, begin to sort of understand some of the structures and forces that had shaped a lot of my own experiences growing up as a child of immigrants and as a person of color um, in the South. And it was the first time that through politics I felt like I was able to turn sort of anger at injustice that I saw into something productive, you know, through political work. But I never had the opportunity to really dig deep to really understand why things were happening. And so that's where I got into That's why I got into academia. Because I think academia, unlike being involved in the world of practical politics, gives you the chance to really um, dig deep and understand forces that are hard to see when you're caught up in the day-to-day. So it's kind of like having a perch from which I can make sense of the world. And so I think that sociology and academia then, it plays an important role in helping to identify trends and provide context and interpret what's going on. Um, but it's done best when those two, two worlds of, academ- of academia and practice are linked. So because they're, they're both, they're different forms of learning and the learning just happens in different ways.
1: And so when you talk about linking um, academia to the world of practice and, you know, uh-huh. sort of using this ledge and this perspective to get a sense of these deeper forces, what do you think then about the sort of public sociology or the public dissemination um, of research findings? Um, how can we as scholars be sort of more publicly engaged or or do that linkage, do those linkages better in our work?
0: Yeah, it's a good question because... Um, The the Society Pages is one of many great initiatives that are going on right now trying to make academic work more accessible to the public. And I think all those endeavors are really important. But in the end, for um, I think the most successful partnerships are the ones in which there's a true partnership between academics and practitioners. And so what I mean by that is I feel like a lot of times Um, in the work that I do because I work with a lot of organizations you know sometimes what they'll do is they'll call me in when let's say they have a funder who wants them to evaluate a project and they want me to just come and do this evaluation for them and it feels like a very transactional kind of exchange to to borrow some of the terms from my book right in the sense that they need to get this evaluation done you know they might give me a grant and then I go in I research it and it's basically like doing a program evaluation but it doesn't necessarily push the learning that either the organization or that I do in in new directions. And the partnerships that have been the most successful have been ones where you know the um, organizations that I'm working with and I can kinda go in together, you know, talk about the questions that we're both thinking about, what are the challenges that they're facing in their work, what are the questions that I've been thinking about in my own research, and then craft a joint agenda through which we can both think about how to push our thinking and our learning in new directions. And so I feel like this whole idea of public sociology is so important and there's so much room for more of those kind of partnerships to emerge.
1: Ah, wonderful. I'm right there with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now on to th- this is my favorite question to ask people when we do our office hours podcasts, um, mm-hmm. particularly people who are engaged in political life or do research on the public process, uh, on the political process. So, what's one fact about political life that might be well known in the scholarship either from your work or from others work um, but might not be well known by the public that you wish was more well known?
0: I guess the answer that I would give is this idea that transformation is possible, right? I think that, you know, when I say that it may not seem that um, surprising in a sense, but I think that there are all sorts of ways that are built into our system where we generally assume that it's more efficient and effective to basically activate people who are already motivated to get involved than it is to do the hard work of trying to transform someone's motivations to cul- and, and cultivate their willingness to get involved in politics. And I think that part of what um, I learned from doing research for this book is that transformation is not only possible, but it's probable when you have organizations that are structured the right way. Now, I'm not saying that it's easy, um, because because they, the work is really hard, but the fact that it's possible I think challenges our assumptions about treating people more like consumers and, and less like citizens. If we, can, if we really believe in the idea that, that transformation is possible, then I think it sort of reorients our thinking about what it means to build a citizenry, a democratic citizenry, as opposed to just a group of people who, just a group of consumers who are choosing political candidates off the shelf, let's say.
1: Ah, oh, fantastic. Well, Hari, thank you so much for coming by Office Hours, and thank you so much for talking with us today.
0: Thanks very much for having me.